Well, we thought it would be fun to just um, get to spend some time with Dr. Lawson. He's stuck here, I mean, here in Bakersfield anyway. <laughs> so so we're here together. So um, what we, we spent a month do, here one night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a month here one night, yes. So what we thought we would do is, is – um, we, we had a we had a Q and A for uh, our, our pastors and leaders who came yesterday, and we sort of did that along the lines of more church leadership, and we wanted to do uh, some some questions and some thoughts more about um, just uh, just local church functioning and the 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 body life of the church. And so um, I'm going to just kind of toss some questions his direction. But before we do that, why don't we pray and we'll uh, ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father, we thank you so much uh, for the Lord's Day. Every seven days, we get to have a, a little taste of heaven. We get to uh, gather together and to just have a little preview of what our our glorious fellowship at the at the throne of God will be like. And Lord, we've so enjoyed that. We've so enjoyed uh, the last two days of just magnificent worship and fellowship and preaching. We're so thankful for that, Lord. It's energized us. It's uh, made the Lord's Day even more special. So we're thankful for that, and we're thankful for uh, Dr. Lawson being here, Lord. We pray that this will be a time that's uplifting to us and to him as well. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So um, I, I'm just going to toss some questions at you that are they're mostly have to do with um, body life of the church and some things like that, but I wanted to sort of segue off of, first of all, your message last night on sanctification. Um, you spoke on sanctification, and what I wanted to do is just have you just kind of share your heart and follow up with what what's on your heart regarding a believer pursuing a sanctified and a set-apart life for Christ and, and really doing that aggressively. Yeah. Um, you know, I have several concerns as, as I preach on sanctification, and it seems like we're always trying to address certain things to get the pendulum back into the middle. And, um, you know, I would consider myself a part of the, although I'm 65 years old, the Young, Restless, and Reform movement. And there's a half of a chapter in that book about, about me in that Young, Restless, and Reform book. Um, but there has come what I would call a hyper-grace movement out of that. Uh, Tully Tavigian even at times Mark Driscoll, and and where there is such an emphasis upon grace, well, rightly so, but to the exclusion of our personal responsibility to take ownership of our pursuit of holiness. And their idea of sanctification is a passive sanctification, which is merely looking back at your justification and seeing what you became in Christ, but to the exclusion of um, an emphasis upon obedience to the Word of God and buffeting your body and making it your slave and disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness and resisting temptation and wrestling against uh, spiritual forces. And so as wh- what's on my mind as, as I speak on sanctification, and it depends on where I am, and obviously this is a very well-balanced church, and what I know of you, I know that you've got the, pen- the pendulum in the middle where it needs to be. But as I speak on it, that's just constantly in my mind right now. Um, this over reaction against kind of the the performance of the Pharisees. And so they want to swing it all the way over here to just where they've neutered themselves. Um, And and you see what it's done in their lives, in those two spiritual leaders. And um, it doesn't even work in their life, much less in the lives of of those that they minister to. But there's a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s who really buy in to their deceptive message. Um, and they end up shipwrecking um, their Christian lives as well. So I, I guess I tend to push down on the gas pedal with uh, on, on the need 
to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. God has worked it in. You must work it out. And it's even at the beginning of verse 12 there, Philippians 2.12, the emphasis, emphasis upon obedience. So I'll be speaking on the new birth. The new birth is what theologians call monergistic, meaning there is only one active agent in the new birth, uh, and that is God. Man is entirely passive. God alone is active in the new birth. And I'll even make the statement during the sermon, um, what did you do to be born physically? Well, nothing. Uh, You're good, but not that good. (laughs) Um, It was entirely God in your first birth, and it was entirely God in your new birth. Having said that, sanctification is synergistic because we are no longer dead in trespasses and sins. We, we have received new life in Christ, and we have put on the new man, and we are given the mind of Christ. We are given a new heart. We are given a new will that is active. And so, therefore, there actually sanctification actually is synergistic, Uh, There are the two forces. It is God who is at work within us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But nevertheless, we must work out our salvation in fear and trembling. As as I hear many in this area of sanctification, they still think that sanctification is monergistic. Uh, and and, And many of them are reformed. And as John MacArthur says, they have a great doctrine of justification, just no doctrine of sanctification whatsoever. And so for them, the narrow gate leads to the broad path, um, which is false. Narrow gate, narrow path, broad gate, broad path. You can't mix and match. So uh, I'm giving you too long of an answer. Oh, that's, but that's fabulous. No, that's and we've talked about that. How many of you here remember the terms monergistic and synergistic? Very good. All right, I love Excellent. seeing those hands. <laughs> that's right. Um, one of the, a few weeks ago, I preached a message on the the primacy and power of preaching, and and we're always trying to to kind of elevate preaching um, because it's not just it's not just this separate activity that preachers do in a in a vacuum, and then the people are somehow dis disengaged from that. It's a connective activity. And so to kind of help them get inside the mind of a preacher, just talk about the the importance of preaching theologically, uh, of having your theology pour out through your preaching. Well, um, if there is no theology, there is no real preaching. I mean, you're just talking. Um, You're very good at saying nothing. Uh, You can fill the building. You just can't fill the pulpit. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones called preaching theology on fire, uh, logic on fire, and so um, there has to be both substance and style, and if there isn't the substance, it doesn't matter how good your style is. Uh, It's like a doctor. You may have good bedside manners, but if you can't practice medicine, you're of no help to us, And, and the theology is the medicine. And, and so the Bible is theological. Uh, and so if you're not preaching theology, you're not preaching the Bible. Yeah, you're, you're just a, a life coach or a life guru uh, spinning out uh, little bumper sticker slogans on how to live your Christian life that would fit on the back of a coffee mug. Um, and so there must be sound doctrine. There must be the apostles' teaching. There must be the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Um, the, the Word of God is drips with theology. So if you're not a theological expositor, you're not an expositor. And if you're not a theological preacher, you're not a preacher. Um, so you have to preach sound doctrine. The entire Bible is wired with theology. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. Uh, you, you have to preach 
doctrine. So I, I don't know. Give me another follow-up question to, to push that ball no, down the field. That, that's excellent. Uh, a little bit more. No, that's that's excellent. Um, I, I think the follow-up to that would be that, as you preached last night, uh, theology always has a it has a response, and I think you answered that in the first question. Um, that, that our response is obedience. Yeah, and, and let me just say, last night, I mean, which was, everybody keeps saying last night. It wasn't that long <laughs> that I preached. I started at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, <laughs> it just seemed like it. I finished last night. <laughs> when people left, they felt like they needed a haircut, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, I've been here a while. Um, so... Um, I, I, if I could preach that over again, I mean, I would have gotten to the so what. I, I really lost myself looking at verses, chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. I should have just like quickly gotten to verse 18 and had more time later downstream to, to have application, and it really just became more of a teaching session going through that with some exhortation. But I, I, need, I realized I needed more application in that, so... I just feel better if I could beat myself up just a little bit. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> uh, last night uh, we, we had uh, dinner with the elders, and that was a that was a fun time. And uh, one of the rare times I've ever seen him without a tie. I, I had to take a picture. Well, it's only because I sweated so much <laughs> last night when I was preaching that I took my tie off and hung it in Russell's car. Or was that Grant's car? That was Russell, my car. That was your car. I'll okay. never wash that spot again. Yeah, yeah. So. So I hung it up on the visor so that where the knot had been, it wouldn't my tie wouldn't remain wrinkled. So I'm kind of obsessive perfectionist. So I love that. Well, one of the, one of the things we ended up talking about, Grant had asked you the question. You know, what what advice or what thoughts would you have for the leadership of a church for us to remain healthy? We, we've enjoyed a, a period of health and vitality. I wanted to kind of expand that, and from your uh, time as a pastor for 34 plus years. Um, what, what would you say to church members that, to you, characterize church members that, that are healthy and vital and that are a, 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 a useful part of the body? Um, what, what are the things that you saw in your ministry? As far as the average church person, in, in what aspect, in what dimension? Are you going to cover the whole thing? The, the whole thing. Anything that, that you saw that meant a lot to you? Well, um, obviously— one, that they would come to church. <laughs> uh, it's hard to preach to empty pews and to empty seats. And so I really stress that the Lord's Day is really a big deal. And I'm not a Sabbatarian, but I'm close to it. Um, and I, I think the Lord's Day, I, I, I don't think the Lord expects less of us uh, under grace. If anything, He expects more of us under grace. We certainly would have, I think, a greater motivation. And so it's, it's not a day off. Um, it's a day to be with the family of God, but to, more importantly, be with the Lord. So that, that, that's one thing that, that I appreciated is people in our church who made the effort, if they were out of town, to come back on Sunday and, and to be with the church, uh, with God's people. And I've stressed, even with my own children and, and my wife and I as we're on vacation, that I don't care where we are, we're going to church on Sunday. I mean, we're going to find somewhere to go to church on Sunday. And just because we're on vacation does not mean that we're on vacation from the Lord. And so I can remember us packing the car and going off on these trips and just, you know, asking my kids, I mean, do you have your Bible? Do you have church clothes? Um, you know, do you have something to wear that's presentable for us to go to church? So, I mean, just starting at the most basic level for the church to come to church. Uh, second, as they come, that they come attentive. Um, I, I just remember as a young boy growing up, Sunday morning began on Saturday night. And when I was a young boy, I know this sounds like, you know, back in the dinosaur age, um, but I am younger than Bart. I do want you to know that. So, <laughs> oh, there's Bart over there. Okay. Someone wake up Bart over there. <laughs> Give him a little nudge. <laughs> um, that every Saturday night, 
my dad came in my bedroom and we laid out my clothes, what I'd wear on Sunday. And I got the idea, this is a big deal to come to church on Sunday. This is the biggest day of the week. And so we, we would lay out my pants and my coat and, and I'd go into this little vanity area and he'd tie my tie. He'd stand behind me, look in the mirror and tie my tie, get the tie ready for tomorrow. And then we polished my shoes. And the best my shoes would be would be for Sunday morning. Um, and we went to bed early. You know, we didn't stay up late. And so I can remember my dad coming in the bedroom, my mom making sure the lights were out. And I know this sounds like I, I grew up, you know, with, with Beaver and, and leave it to Beaver, but I kind of did. <laughs> and so... And we got to church early. I mean, we'd be like the first people in the sanctuary. And so we would sit down as a family, and my dad would get the worship guide and start looking up the hymns and see the responsive reading and put little, tear off little pieces of the worship guide and put those little pieces of paper in the hymnal. So we're like spring-loaded and and, and ready to sing. So I'm, I'm... I'm in high school even, we're doing this, and I'm watching this, and I so respected my father that whatever was important to him became important to me just by observation. So, I mean, there were not any, I mean, we're not cutting any corners on this. I mean, we started the night before, and... You know, we're in the car. I can still remember him backing out of the driveway, pulling the car up the side of the house, waiting on Mom <laughs> and me and my sister and my brother. To He's got the car running there on the side of the, of the house on the street. And, you know, I mean, he, he's ready, and we're going to be here on time. We're going to be here early. And, and anyway, it, was just, it, it left an impression on me, and it started with Dad, and um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of rambling a bit, but I just appreciated people even being at church on time, and I mean, you, you don't show up late for your job. You don't show up late for school. I, I sure didn't show up late for football practice. Um, all the more reason I wouldn't show up late for church. So I appreciated that. And then the people's attentiveness as I preached, without going into all of it, I mean, they, they were note-takers. They would flip to the pages with me. I mean, they were with me. I loved hearing every, the pages. Everyone's turning, you know. And it just doesn't do it for me when someone's got a cell phone, you know, and it's just Amen. like I, I have no idea what you're, <laughs> what you're even watching on that yes. cell phone. And I don't know what you're texting right now, but you're not texting me. <laughs> I know that. Um, and I just love hearing those pages of the Bible turn. And then after the service was over, um, while I tend to be kind of an introvert, I mean, I wanted to be out there and I wanted to hear the feedback from people. And I, I didn't want to hear about my illustration. I didn't want to hear about some business thing, Pastor, would you make whatever announcement? I don't want to hear that. This is, I'm not doing church business out here. Um, I want to know how did the Word of God affect your life? And I'm looking around, and I'm looking for the guy over in the corner who's waiting for everyone to, to kind of pass on through so he can make his way, so I can make contact with him. I just, But I just appreciated people who wanted to talk about the truth of what was just presented. You know, I go to someone's house and the wife prepares a meal. She'd like some kind of feedback. Like, did you enjoy it? I mean, was it helpful? Um, and, and the preacher's the same way. Um, and then obviously for, them, for their lives to be changed um, is is the bottom line. It's it's not information, it's transformation that is the bottom line for our preaching. So um, I would want to see the fruit, and that would encourage me. 
so much, and I loved it when people would bring people up to me before and after the service. Either they met a visitor and they wanted to help me connect with them, or they brought their neighbors, they brought someone from school, they brought someone from work, and that was always an exciting thing for me that they would want to introduce that person to me and it be a connecting point. So, I mean, those are just, obviously, there are more, there's so many more things that could be said, and that's probably enough for me to say just to put a toe in the water. Well, that's, and that's really helpful because it's very, it's very centered on not how you behave in a, in a committee or doing this or that. It's really worship-centered, and, and that's really what we're all about. In fact, you, you answered the next question I already had, so that, that took care of one. Um, <laughs> Who tied my tie? Yeah, <laughs> that was the next one. It was yeah. my father. Yeah. So the, um, d- to piggyback on that, we had a nice discussion last night, and, and we're always trying to, to to kind of connect leadership and and the followership. We'll sometimes call uh, uh, the church, and uh, you answer the question about just how the the leadership. And, and I'm going to broaden this a little bit. We have elders, and then we have deacons who carry out the wishes of the elders. Um, uh, just talk about how they, what their responsibility is regarding um, the life of the church and keeping a positive momentum. Some of the things you discussed last night were really helpful. Well, what I said last night, and it was Grant who asked me the question, what would I say to the elders? I just said more than anything else, the attitude's everything. Um, and for you to be positive for you to be energetic, for you to be excited, for you to be enthusiastic about this church and what God is doing in this church, it puts more gas in, in my tank than, than anything else you can do or be. And, and I said I sense that just by the laughter around the table and by the healthy eye contact and body posture and the interaction. I, mean, I, I can read where, where someone is. And um, so I, I see all those positive dynamics. And so I just said, let me encourage you to maintain that and guard that because you can't put a price tag on that. And that's far more important than some of the decisions we end up making administratively. And it's not to diminish the importance of those things. It's really to elevate the room temperature and the atmosphere in which leadership is carried out. And it, it, and it either, as I know as the pastor, it, that either puts high-octane gas in my tank or you are riding my brakes as I'm trying to minister and preach. It's, and it's nothing in between. It, it's, it's either or. And the greatest ministry you can have to me as an elder or a deacon is is your positive, enthusiastic spirit and heart about what God is doing in this church, and and to be all on board, and for your shoulder to be to the same plow with me, and and what a blessing it is for this church to have elders like that. And I've met some of the deacons, um, and that, that's just really such a simple point. But I can read it in faces. I can read it in eye contact or the lack thereof. I can read it in body posture. I can read it by who you're talking to, either quietly off in a corner or interacting in front of everyone else. I mean, it's just, it's, it's like a marriage, you know. You can just read your wife, which she doesn't have to say a word. I mean, you know when she is supportive and what's going on, and you can also read <laughs> nonverbal communication. Um, when, you know, she's not emotionally with you, and you read it in the leadership as well. So I, I realize that's just kind of almost, it's not a superficial answer, but it's a generic answer. But you just can't even put a price tag Absolutely. on that. I mean, it's far more important, more important than how the chairs are set up in here or, you know, how bright the lights are or stuff like that. Excellent. Thank you. Um, a few months ago, uh, you preached on the Great White Throne Judgment at 
Grace Community Church. I was there, and by the time you were done, I was pretty much questioning my salvation again. <laughs> and um, but but that was a that was a, a powerful example of eschatological preaching and and preaching eschatology. Um, I think if you ask anybody here at Grace Bible Church, we have a pretty healthy emphasis on eschatology, and that's not by design. It's just. Um, we just finished going through both of Paul's letters to uh, the Thessalonians, which is saturated in eschatology. We're in the middle of Isaiah, which you can't escape eschatology in Isaiah. Um, just speak to the importance of eschatology in the life of a believer, that it's not just a, a theological concept. But Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, it's been said that preaching on the return of Christ is, um, you know, is... is High. I'm trying to remember how the analogy goes. Is 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 gas in the fire of our evangelism? I mean, the the fact that Christ could return at any moment, the imminency of the return of Christ, that causes me. I can just speak for me to try to keep short accounts with the Lord. You know, whatever needs to be confessed needs to be confessed now. Whatever needs to be repented of needs to be repented of now. Today is the Lord's day. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Tomorrow is the fool's day. Today is God's day. And so it keeps the, the rope tight in my relationship with the Lord. I can't just be shuffling through life. Um, I, I have to do today what the Lord would have me to do. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Boast not yourself of tomorrow, for you know not what a day may bring forth. So the eschatology just hovers over my life, and um, it keeps a healthy tension in, in my heart that I have to do today, not even today, this moment, what needs to be done this moment because the judge, James 5, the judge is standing at the door. And the imagery there, I mean, it's almost his hand is on the door ready to push it open and to burst onto the scene. Um, also, you know, he who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure, 1 John 3, 2. I, I did my master's thesis on 1 John 3, 2, um, that we shall be made like him, for we shall see him just as he is. And then verse 3, he that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. And I did my master's thesis on what all takes place in that split second when we are made like Christ. That's always been a powerful motivation in the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Again, with the hyper-grace movement, their presumption is that there is no judgment seat of Christ for the believer that there will be no accountability that I will give as a servant to my master for how I've used my time, my talent, and my treasure. Um, no, I, w- I will give an account to him for how I invested my life, the entirety of it, to further the gospel. And, and, and so I will appear at the end of the age uh, before him. And, and my life will go on even after I die. And the influence I've put into my children and the influence I have spread to others, um, the Lord, can, we can't even have the judgment seat of Christ until the end of the age, till all the cows have come home, until there's been the full rep, ripple effect of a person's life. That's a part of eschatology. And, and that's just hovering over me, and it causes me to use my time and to live my life at a certain pace. In John 9, verse 4, Jesus said, Night is coming when no man can work. Let us do the works of him who sent me, sent, sent me while it is day. So there was a pace about Jesus' life. He did all that he did in his public ministry in slightly more than three years. It was an, had an enormous effect, and he understood that the day was, was, was closing on his life and that the night was fast approaching and, what, and that there was a, a work that the Lord had given him to do. 
and he had an allotted time to do that work. And should he procrastinate, then he will have to do twice the amount of work in the same amount of time. And so I think about that a lot in my life. Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. The, the flip side of that is only a fool would fail to number his days. And so I, 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 that's a part of eschatology. And it's, it's far more, to me, more important than the third toe on a beast in Daniel. That's interesting. But what moves me is not whether that was the Medo-Persian or whether that was the Babylonian Empire. What moves me is the Lord is coming back at any moment, and I will appear before him at the end of the age, and I will give an account to him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Therefore we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every man uh, will give an account and be recompensed for the deeds done in his body, whether good or bad. And the word for bad there means worthless. It's not an accountability for our sin. Christ has paid the penalty for our sin, and there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't mean we're just going to all appear and the whole thing got washed away and we all get the same reward and we just skip into heaven. There's a lot of nobodies down here who are going to be somebodies up there. And there's a lot of people in the spotlight down here who are going to be at the end of the line up there. And the, the faithfulness with which we invested what was entrusted to us, it's all going to come out on that last day. So that, that, that grips me and that motivates me and you know I'm an old athlete and I know how important motivation is in excelling and 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 driving and that is a healthy motivation um, part of it's the fear of the Lord in fact that's the next verse second Corinthians 5 11 therefore knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade men um, as well as to glorify him and for honor to be brought to him on the last day, that he didn't squander what was invested in me. Um, There's a stewardship, I feel, of what has been placed into my hand that I want to have invested it wisely and to bring glory to him. That's very helpful. In fact, I wanted to ask kind of a a follow-up question, um, speaking of eschatology, and to kind of set this up. You've spoken often of your unique and special relationship with uh, R.C. Sproul, and um, you wouldn't see eye-to-eye with him on a lot of eschatological issues, and yet you've maintained this vital, loving relationship um, with him. In our particular community here, this is still, even though there's half a million people, it's still a small town, and um, eschatology is a hot topic uh, between different churches. It it really is. yeah, you can hear the murmurs there, because because we have we have people who 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 uh, who you know have relationships, family members, even in churches with different uh, different viewpoints. Um, how do you maintain theological convictions? I mean, obviously we're 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 not going to preach just a an overly general eschatology. How do you maintain those theological convictions and maintain the vital loving relationships with other believers, especially if they want to be argumentative about it? Yeah, that, that's so interesting that you would say that because I live in that world. Um, I spent this morning at breakfast at the hotel. Uh, I'm writing a 2,500-word article that will be published after R.C. dies um, in a table talk article. And what he has meant to me. And I, I sat there this morning and just re-edited that article. And, you know, what he means to me personally. 
as well as theologically. Uh, It's a debt I can never repay. I think it's an immature Christian who walks around half-cocked, who wants to walk up to someone like that and immediately zero in on where we disagree. You need to just go to the back of the line. You're an arrogant upstart, and you're argumentative, and you're not kind. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 says, The Lord's bondservant is to be patient with all when wronged, and to be kind and tenderhearted. I had a man come up to me yesterday. I was talking to a pastor here in town, and a man came up and pulled me away while I was talking to a pastor like this was an emergency. And I normally would kind of give a cold shoulder to someone like that, like I'm talking to this person. And I sensed like this is so important that I I said, excuse me, and he pulled me. He said, I need to talk to you privately. So he pulled me aside privately and said, what do you think about replacement theology? And I said, well, it's not my position. And he goes, well, we need, and he started using the word heresy. And I said, sir, first of all, you need to understand what the word heresy means. Heresy does not mean we disagree. A heretic is an unbeliever who is outside the body of Christ, who is a false teacher, who is a wolf in sheep's clothing, and it has nothing to do with whether you're amillennial, premillennial, or postmillennial. Less than anything to do with that. It has to do with the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the hypostatic union of the humanity and deity of Christ, the sufficiency of the cross, the bodily resurrection, the finality of the death of Christ upon the cross, his present ascension at the right hand of God the Father. If you deny these essentials of the faith, you are a bona fide card-carrying heretic. But just because someone has a different view of baptism or church government or eschatology does not place them outside the kingdom of heaven. And I asked him, I said, would you die at a martyr's stake for your eschatological position? And he said, no, I don't think that I would. And I said, that is the correct answer. You would be a fool to die for that. But I will die for the deity of Christ. I will die for the purity of the gospel. So we need to sort through what are you willing to actually die for? And what is an intramural in-house discussion? And I, and I, and I, I didn't rebuke him, but I corrected him. And I said, sir, it is the height of immaturity that you would have one conversation with me and the one thing that you want to fellowship over and talk about is differences in eschatology. That that is so immature. You should be looking for areas of agreement. And I I, I said, listen, if R.C. Sproul was standing right here, I can assure you he would turn you inside out before you even knew what happened intellectually, theologically, in every way. You don't even know the questions, much less the answers. So I I, I think that there is a humility that is needed, and I, I think sometimes even people in our part of the body of Christ have made eschatology a matter of whether you're in the faith or not in the faith. If not, in fact, they have an attitude. And I think it is very unhealthy, personally. When I was in seminary, I went to Dallas Seminary, 
I, I studied under Ryrie, Walford, Pentecost. I, I got the straight dose from, from, the, from those guys. And I was a systematic theology major. It's back when you could actually major in something. And I went to seminary. I got my master's, my THM. It took me five years to get it. And I took every class that, that they taught in eschatology. And I wrote my, dissert, my, my thesis on the rapture. So I, I got all that stuff. When I was in seminary, which was in the 1970s, it was before the young, restless, and reformed. If you were reformed back then, what that meant is you went to a liberal Presbyterian church who did not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. And so, therefore, by default, you're also an, an amillennialist or a postmillennialist. And the whole thing is just lumped together into one omelet. And so, therefore, if you're an amillennialist or a postmillennialist, you don't believe the Bible, and you question the virgin birth, and you question the resurrection. Well, that was in the 1970s. And so there was this attitude that everything just got thrown in, and there was a lot of fact to it as well. Those days have changed. I mean, there now is a, a bona fide, genuine, reformed resurgence in the body of Christ that um, where there are Bible-believing um, men who actually hold to a different eschatological position. Now, I don't hold to it. Um, and R.C. Sproul once asked me to succeed him, to follow him as the head of Ligonier, and I said, R.C., I, I, I don't want to do it simply because I have a different eschatological position, and I don't want to tarnish your ministry and what you have invested your entire life. And, and I will say this. He then said to me, Steve, that is fine. I still want you to head up my ministry. That was a very mature position for, for him to assume rather than a, a, a hair-splitting decision. Now, I, I didn't know that you were going to ask me, and I, d- I don't know what all answer you're, you're wanting me no, to give. That's wonderful. But, but I, I think we need to put our revolvers up and look for areas of agreement with other Christ-loving, Christ-following, Bible-believing believers. Oh, and I told this man this. I... I, I <laughs> He asked for it. Darren, I, I told you not to come up and ask these questions. <laughs> I told him, I said, the greatest thing that could happen to your life is for the church in America to be thrown into intense persecution and for us to begin to have to die for our faith and for you to end up in a, in a prison cell with an amillennialist. <laughs> And, and you're going to be looking for areas of agreement because he's the only person in this prison who's not trying to kill you. And, and persecution has a way of sorting out what's most important. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there are doctrines that are of most importance. And we, we need to figure out what is of most importance and what's just important. And every time Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you, he was not meaning, hey, I'm going to tell you the truth now. What he is saying, what he, is, what he meant is what I'm about to say is elevated to a higher level of importance than the other things that I'm saying that are true. So we need to understand some things are more important than other things. So anyway, and you can't elevate everything to the same level. That's wonderful. Um, very helpful. One, one last question, and I think just more of a personal um, about your own heart question. Yesterday in the, in the pastor's uh, lunch, um, we asked the guys, you know, what preachers have impacted them? And uh, uh, Dr. Lawson listed six different men. I wanted to kind of follow up with that and just um, ha- have you share. I, I think it's always helpful for the church to hear the heart of a preacher, but... Um, Obviously, preaching is in your blood. It's who you are. Just share your heart um, for a couple of minutes about why you are so passionate about preaching personally. Well, I'm so passionate about preaching because preaching is so passionate in the heart of God. So 
if someone's heart is not passionate about preaching, you do not share the heart of God. Throughout the Old Testament, as God communicated, he sent preachers to be his spokesman, to be his mouthpiece. He didn't send, you know, whatever other kind of ministry. He sent preachers. God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. He prepared the way of his coming by sending a preacher. He then trained 12 men and sent them out to preach. When you open the book of Acts, when the church was most on fire, 20% of the book of Acts is a sermon. The reason the early church was so lit up was several reasons, but one, it was preaching that was stoking the flames in the hearts of the people. We don't need less preaching today. We need more preaching. And I think one reason the American church has become so anemic is we have so little preaching. We need all the other ministries, so in no way am I against that. It's not either or, it's both and. But people only have so much time to give to church. And for every ministry that's added, it displaces preaching. To one extent or another, some more than others. And so we've canceled preaching on Wednesday night. We've canceled preaching on Sunday night. I mean, we've shortened the sermon on Sunday morning. I mean, no wonder the church has become so weak when the primary, and I emphasize the word primary, the primary ordinary means of grace is the preaching of the Word of God. The Puritans used to say if you had a choice between if you could just spend one hour either in personal Bible reading and study or one hour under the preaching of the Word of God, which of those two would most benefit your soul? Well, the average American Christian would say to spend one hour alone in Bible study. The Puritans, 11 times out of 10, would say, no, it is to be under the preaching of the Word of God, because it's a Spirit-filled man who is saturated with the Word of God, who sees more than what I see in the Scripture, and who brings it with force and conviction and power that far exceeds simply me just sitting here reading this and my mind wandering and making challenging and encouraging application to my soul and bringing me quorum Deo into the very face of God, um, we need to recover that. Every great season in church history, without exception, has been identified by and marked by a new wave of preachers that have burst onto the scene. Reformation, Puritan Age, Great Awakening, Victorian era. I mean, I, I can just walk you century by century. They are marked by the great preachers. And every valley, every wilderness, every low ebb in church history, when the church has languished, when the church has been anemic, when the church has, has just um, faltered and failed have been those seasons in which there has been such pathetic preaching. So in Amos 8, verse 11, Amos records, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when there will be a famine in the land, not a famine for food or for water, but a famine for the hearing of the word of the Lord. The worst thing that could ever happen to a nation is for God to withhold his preachers. And it's the ultimate judgment of God, for God to withhold his preachers. And the greatest blessing that God can ever bestow upon a land is for God to send forth his preachers. So, I mean, why am I passionate about preaching? It's because this is how God works This is how God designed the church.
the pulpit should be the greatest influence upon the church, any local church. It should set the watermark for worship, holiness, fellowship, ministry, evangelism, missions. It's the pulpit that should be driving all of those. In turn, the church should have the greatest influence upon the world, right? So if you had one bullet to fire and wanted to change the world, where would you fire that one bullet? Where you had the greatest rate of return. If you had one quarter to invest, you would invest it in the pulpit to have the greatest effect upon the church, and then the church had the greatest effect upon the world. It's a domino effect. So that's why I'm so passionate about preaching. Um, It's God's means to reach the world through the life of the church. So um, I'm trying to think how to put this. No church advances beyond its pulpit. It may not live up to its pulpit but it will not live one inch or advance one inch beyond the preaching of the Word of God. It's always been this way. Wow, that's helpful. Thank you so much for that. Very affirming. Well, boy, that went fast. Um, We have to be done. Um, We're we're not big clappers here, but can you thank Dr. Lawson for his time? So so I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us, and then we'll have our usual uh, little fellowship time and uh, be back for our formal time of worship. So let's go to the Lord. Thank you, Father, for uh, the wisdom that you've brought uh, through Dr. Lawson and through uh, the, the, the experiences you've given him, the studies that he's undergone. Lord, it's just um, another illustration of 2 Timothy 2, 2, that we, we pass the truths of, of God from one man to another, from one generation to another, and we're thankful for that thankful for him spending the weekend here with us at Grace Bible Church and at the Steadfast Conference. The Lord, more importantly now, our focus in the next few minutes turns exclusively to you, turns exclusively to our triune God, um, who we, we understand that God the Father and God the Spirit have pointed us to Christ and that we want to proclaim Christ and we want to present every person mature in him. So, Lord, in the next few moments, would you begin to turn our hearts and affections toward the greatest thing we can do on this earth, and that is to worship you. Thank you again for this time that we've had to just learn and to glean. We pray it would be beneficial and ultimately lead to sanctification, sanctified lives that are pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.